Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, A Country Divided, the 2020 U.S. Elections and the Future of American Politics, is from a webinar featuring Professor David Schultz. Professor Schultz is a national expert in election law, professional ethics, state constitutional law, and eminent domain and land use law. With a country divided by the coronavirus, the economy, race, and the killing of George Floyd as a backdrop, Professor Schultz examines the factors that influence the 2020 elections on the federal, congressional, and state levels, as well as the impact the election results will have on law, public policy, and America into 2021 and beyond. Marios Cabrera, a 3L from the Latinx Law School Student Association, provides opening remarks. This event is part of the law school's Civic Scholars Initiative, which encourages students to be involved in the election process by voting, volunteering, and learning. This webinar was originally recorded on November 4th, 2020. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. So my name is Marielle Cabrera. I'm a 3L at the University of Minnesota, and I'm here in my capacity as a representative from the Latinx Law School Student Association, um, along with my colleague Brent Murcia. Um, so we have the privilege of co-hosting this event, and we are so pleased with the turnout so far, and we appreciate uh, the participation of so many people in our legal community, uh, especially considering that many of us are likely sleep deprived. Um, so this event is part of the Civic Scholars Initiative, uh, which is a partnership between Minnesota Law School students and the Career Center. Uh, this initiative encourages students to participate in elections by voting, volunteering, and learning about the election process. Um, so to my fellow law school students, this event will count as one credit towards the Civic Scholar transcript notation. So you can go to the website, um, sign the Civic Scholar pledge if you haven't done so already, and we'll be including some of the information about that in the chat. So our distinguished guest today is Professor David Schultz. Professor Schultz is a national expert on election law, professional ethics, state constitutional law, and eminent domain and land use law. He is a professor of law at the University of Minnesota and a distinguished professor of political science and legal studies at Hamlin University. He is a three-time Fulbright scholar and has written 35 books and over 200 articles on American politics. So we're really uh, lucky to get to speak with him today. And if you want to keep up with his thoughts after this discussion, um, you can visit his blog or follow him on Twitter. And I'll be including that information in the chat as well. Um, so at this time, I'd just like to thank all of you for being here today, for engaging in these conversations with us um, and, you know, participating in this really important discourse. And I'd like to uh, especially thank Professor Schultz for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, so with that, I'll turn it over to you, Professor Schultz. Great. Thank you very much. And um, it's my pleasure to be here today. And what I want to do today is I think it's really interesting that, you know, we that the, the title for today, because. I actually wrote for the title of my lecture today or talk or discussion, I call it a divided country waits uh, because I think it's what we're really waiting for at this point. And what I want to do today is I want to give us a little bit of a sense of, of, of some of the characteristics about what this election was like and then think about what's going to happen in the next few days because I think that's really pretty critical. Um, and in fact, I think the next 24 to 48 hours are going to be incredibly important in terms of this election. I'll explain why. So there's going to be, I think, four sort of four major themes that are going to interweave throughout this entire discussion today. One of the themes is, again, it's going to come back about how this is, of course, a very divided nation. And, and I don't think we're going to come out of this election um, any more united than we went into it. So we're going to remain divided. Two, at least for now, um, the 2020 elections are not over yet. Um, um, that we still have several things that are going to have to happen. Um, three, um, I'm going to actually argue that this election is unfolding almost in an entirely predictable way. And you're thinking, how could all this have been predicted? I'm going to still make that argument. And then four, what I want to talk about is what are some of the legal options that are open at this point um, to especially the Trump campaign um, if they want to challenge challenge the results? And I think that's going to be something important to think about here, because not only am I 
do I teach election law, which I'm interested in, but I think all of us as law students, I think, and people are in the legal community are curious when the president said, I'm going to go to the Supreme Court, I'm going to, I'm going to try to stop the counting, et cetera, et cetera. What are the possible um, legal arguments that he's going to try to raise? In the process, um, I'm inviting lots of questions. Um, there's a story once that said that what journalists write the first draft of history. Um, um, I'm not quite sure, you know, where we fit in here. But this morning, um, um, after being up really late last night, you know, doing the radio, and then up really this early this morning doing television, um, I managed to write sort of my first draft of, of how to make sense of all this. So that's what I'm going to try to present here. So let's first. Just think about where we are right now. For all of you folks who need to know where we are, um, we've got a set of numbers right now that suggest that about now, um, um, and I've seen a couple of different conflicting results, and if anybody wants to correct me, please do so. Um, I've seen a conservative estimate right now that says that Joe Biden has 225 electoral votes to Donald Trump's 213. Um, I've seen a a less conservative estimate that says Biden is up to 238 electoral votes um, with Trump still at 213. Um, and I mention this because everything we need to know about the presidential election, of course, is the number what? 270. You know, that all of you know, um, or if you didn't know, um, uh, and just to remind you, is that the popular vote really doesn't matter in a presidential election in the United States, except indirectly. What really matters is getting the electoral votes and to become the president, you have to get to 270. And the race to get to 270 is really a 50 state plus District of Columbia um, campaign to amass those electoral votes. So so the last that I've seen, and if somebody, and again, I haven't, I'm looking at the chat here too, um, here, if somebody wants to sort of if they can, if they updated for me, it would be great also. But again, the last that I knew, it's about 238 for, um, for, for Biden, 213 for Donald Trump. We've got a small cluster of states out there um, that have not yet been called yet. For those of you folks who haven't heard in the last couple of hours, um, Wisconsin um, appears to be um, 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 moving in the direction of, in fact, um, not just moving in the direction, but Biden is in the lead there. Um, Biden is in the lead in, in, in Michigan, and there are still quite a bit of votes to count in the very populous county of, of, of Wayne County, for example, in Michigan, still a lot of votes to count in in Milwaukee proper, um, that's increasingly looking like Biden's going to win those two states. Pennsylvania, there still are hundreds of thousands of votes to, to count at this point. In all three of those states, um, absentee ballots could not be counted until um, until starting on election day. So this is kind of the slow and backlog here. The point being is that I want to make point out is for all of us that that what we're looking at right now is a situation where Biden increasingly looks like he's in the driver's seat of of the states that are out there that have not been called yet. Biden has to win fewer of them than does Donald Trump. So unlike when some of you might have gone to bed last night um, and whatever, if you went to bed last night thinking that that this was in the bag for Donald Trump, um, increasingly it's looking like uh, it's going to be um, um the, it's shifted over to Joe Biden at this point. Um, and I'm going to answer a couple of questions as we go here. Um, uh, what is your take on Arizona? Some sources have called it for Biden. Still, some haven't called it yet. I think it's going to be Biden at the end of the day. Um, my, my numbers put Arizona into the camp um, with with um, um, eventually it's going to be in the camp along with, with Wisconsin and Michigan. But yeah, it looks pretty firm in terms of Arizona at this point. Um, so that would be one of the states. And that was important because by winning Arizona, um, it takes the pressure off of Pennsylvania. And I'll explain why that's important in a few minutes too. So anyhow, I just want people to think, have some sense of where it looks like we are right now. Now, Thinking about those four themes that I, I brought to your attention here, you know, one of them is, again, the idea that we started this election um, in terms of being very polarized. And we really were. Uh, we really were in terms of this election uh, that we could read public opinion polls across the country and realize that on a whole range of issues in terms of um, actual party membership, 
Um, if we looked at how we approached the issues such as the coronavirus, um, unfortunately, um, how the American public viewed the, the death of George Floyd and, and the demonstrations that occurred afterwards, we remain intensely divided in a whole bunch of different ways. And that division, I think, has largely been playing out um, in terms of this election. And I want to tell you a story. So late last December, about what that would have been what about 11 months out from the election, I decided to put my political science hat on, not my law professor hat, and said, let's look at the election now. If the election were held today, what would happen? And and by the way, about a year ago, I was pretty much guessing it probably would be Joe Biden um, and probably would be um, Senator Harris that would be the running the, the ticket on the Democratic side. Um, and if you ask, want to ask me why, I can talk about that during Q&A or something like that. But I said, let's think about this election in terms of what it might look like last December. And remember again, that it's the electoral college that decides the election, it's not the popular vote, okay? A second thing to remember about this, about the electoral college, in 48 out of 50 states, the allocation of electoral votes is done on a winner-take-all basis. And what I mean by winner-take-all, whoever receives the most popular vote in the state gets all the electoral votes. The two exceptions are Nebraska and, and the state of Maine, which do it on the basis of congressional districts. Okay, so that's my second point. The third point is that we know that the, the, the balance, the, the partisan balance in the United States um, um, is uneven. And what I mean by that, Democrats and Republicans are not uniformly distributed across all 50 states. There are some states that have way more Democrats, some states that have way more Republicans. Um, we, 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 are, we are polarized in the sense of, of where Democrats and Republicans want to live. Um, we know that Democrats increasingly are living in urban areas, they're living in suburban areas. Republicans are increasingly in rural areas, outer rings, outer ring um, 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 su suburb areas, especially too. Many of us know that there's sort of the almost um, um, uh, usual um, cantation of saying Democrats watch MSNBC, Republicans watch Fox News, but our partisanship goes deeper. Um, Republicans and Democrats shop at different stores, eat at different restaurants. Um, I've told this story way too many times um, that back in 2016, that if I took a map and plotted out where Democrats and Republicans live, and then plotted out the location of Whole Foods, Chick-fil-A, and Cracker Barrel restaurants, I would get nearly a perfect prediction um, of how that area voted. The reason why I am mentioning this is about a year ago, I would have said that the election was over in 43 states, that we would know, for example, that New York was going to go for the Democratic candidate, California was going to go for the Democratic candidate, as a Massachusetts, Ed would be a Washington and Oregon. Um, and, and we were pretty certain about the predictions on that. On the other hand, we were pretty certain that what? Places such as Louisiana, Utah, Oklahoma would go Republican. So about a year ago, I said, all right, looking at all that, there's 47 states that basically the election is over in. And I did a calculation. And I said, take us back about last December. I said, Joe Biden would start with approximately 222 electoral votes. Donald Trump would start with 205 electoral votes. There would then be seven states. The seven that I picked were Arizona, Florida, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Those seven states, I said, totaling 111 electoral votes would be the seven states um, that would determine who's the president of the United States. They are 
and in my own research, I call these the swing states. The media and the journalism, uh, media and, and in the journalistic circles, they call them the same thing. So my argument was about a year ago that the election was going to come down to those states. And largely, guess what? As predicted, it did come down to those states, but um, at least initially. Moreover, what I argued back then, and I'm going to type this in so everybody gets to see the number here. What I argued was that the election would come down to these four numbers. 10, 11, 7, 270. We knew First off, that 270 refers to the number of electoral votes that you need to become president. Seven is the number of swing states held in balance that, that we're going to decide it beyond those other 43. But what we knew is that within all of those swing states, there were certain counties that were decisive, that were going to really be critical to the election. For example, in Arizona, um, Maricopa County was going to be decisive. We knew because it's so large, the largest county in population. We knew in places like Pennsylvania that that Philadelphia County or Allegheny County or Bucks County um, would be really critical. We knew in places like North Carolina, it would be Wake County um, in a place such as uh, um, Michigan. It would be Wayne County, Detroit. And it would be Milwaukee County, or more properly, Milwaukee itself, the city of Milwaukee. And I mention this because these are counties that are generally quite urban. If there was a high turnout in those counties, um, it would bode well for Joe Biden or a Democrat. These are counties that four years ago did not have high turnouts, relatively speaking. Democrats stayed home on Election Day, and it basically worked to Donald Trump's advantage. So what I argued is that there were probably only 11 counties in America um, within those seven states that mattered. And within those 11 counties, probably only about 10 percent of the population was was critical in terms of deciding how that county would go. So the way I described the election about, about a year ago was to say that approximately 10% of the voters located in 11 counties dispersed across seven states will determine who gets to the, pre, who wins the presidency. In raw numbers, I said, we were probably looking at less than about 100,000, maybe less than 50,000, but let's say certainly less than 100,000 voters that would matter. And so as this election started, it looked like what? These were the seven states. Minnesota was one of them. That that Donald Trump got very close in Minnesota um, four years ago and almost won the state. Um, Clinton only held it by one and a half percentage points. So it looked like these were going to be the cluster. But what wound up happening in about the last month of the election, that tightened even more. Minnesota dropped off the column um, that I became relatively convinced, and the numbers made it look like that too, that Minnesota wasn't going to swing and that it was going to what? It was going to go into the Democratic column. On the other hand, I became skeptical that Trump could win Pennsylvania, I mean, not Pennsylvania, could win Florida or could win North Carolina. Um, these are states that still have very strong Republican infrastructures, um, still have high percentages of white working class um, voters who are male um, and elderly who all seem to be voting for for um, for Donald Trump at this point. So I said it's less likely that those states are are going to um, um, go towards Donald Trump. I was skeptical about Arizona, thinking it was a little bit too soon, but said a possibility. And then I know in the closing weeks, Democrats were thinking they have a chance at Georgia or a chance uh, at my former home state. I used to live in San Antonio, Texas, um, um, and 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 people Democrats thought, well, maybe this is the year. That, that that Texas finally flips. I was skeptical also about that too. I've always thought that Texas is going to flip in 2024. I always, I always thought that Georgia would flip in 2024 because of demographic changes. And so what I was increasingly thinking is that what? And it became clear 
is that the presidential election was going to come down to what? Three states. It was going to come down to Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Those were the three states that determined the presidential election four years ago. Had in those three states, especially in places like Philadelphia County, Allegheny County, perhaps, um, places such as, as Milwaukee proper, or in places, again, like Wayne County or Oakland County in Michigan, had Secretary Clinton received 85,000 more votes from Democrats in those three states, she would be running for re-election as president of the United States. And what we saw in the closing two weeks of the election was an increased focus by Trump and Biden on those states. Yes, there was also some thought that maybe Biden could flip one of the most perennial swing states in America, which is Ohio. I was skeptical about that. But the reason why I'm telling this story about how it went from seven swings to three swings to what appeared to be in the closing day of the election, closing 24 hours or 48 hours, Pennsylvania, it speaks to how polarized we are. That this was an election where the number of undecided voters always was quite small by comparison. Four years ago, even in the closing week or so of the election, about 12 to 13% of the American population was undecided about Clinton versus Trump. Here, we had consistently less than 5%. Everybody had made up their mind. They knew who Trump was. They knew who Biden was. It was a question, are they going to show up to vote at this point? So the election got down to practically what? Down to Pennsylvania. And that's, again, speaks to just thoroughly how competitive it turned out to be and how polarized we turned out to be, where the entire focus of the campaign of the election was just on this one state. And the whole point that I'm making here is first, again, not only how polarized it is, how few people might truly at the end make a difference or decide who um, who becomes the next president of the United States. But it also spoke to what? The entire predictability. And that polarization and predictability go hand in hand. The fact that there are so few people who are changing their minds, the fact that that we know that this election was going to simply be about what? Turnout, about mobilizing turnout. All of this reinforced this notion that in many ways, this election unfolded in a way um, that that was not a surprise. Now, you're going to say, you wrote up this original description back in December, Professor Schultz. What about the pandemic? What about the, the, the economy? What about George Floyd and what happened afterwards? And yes, those are those are issues to consider. But what I want to point out to people is that this election was always going to be about one thing and one thing only. Donald Trump. Four years ago, Donald Trump was incredibly successful in making the election a referendum on Secretary Clinton's character. It was an election in which both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, were disliked by about 60% of the population. Not the same 60, but disliked. Trump made it about her. He won. Two years ago, the midterm elections were about a referendum on Donald Trump, and it didn't go well for him. And it didn't go well for him because in that election, what happened is the single most important voter in America showed up to vote, college-educated suburban women. In 2016, college-educated suburban women stayed home, didn't vote, or at least let's say not in high percentages. People under the age of 30 didn't turn out to vote in very high percentages, and people of color 
didn't turn out to vote. And it wasn't a good year for Secretary Clinton. In 2016, those three groups of voters showed up, but especially those college educated suburban women, they are 52, well, women in general are 52% of the population. College educated suburban women 20 years ago used to be Republicans. Now they're Democrats or almost Democrats, not quite there yet, but they're moving in that direction. And so this election was about going to be about Donald Trump. It was going to be another rerun on his character. For all the things that he had said about women, which I don't need to sort of recount here, and you know some of the statements and, and lines that he made, but also in the closing few weeks, it was about what? It was about Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away, about Trump trying to um, put Amy Comey Barrett on, and how this would play out and how many women were very concerned that this now put reproductive rights center in terms of the election. So this became an election about, about again, those three states reduced down to eventually to, to um, that one state. Yes, um, this was an election about, um, about Trump. And when the coronavirus occurred and then the economy tanked, Yes, those became issues in of themselves, but in many ways, they were surrogates for what you thought about Donald Trump. If you dislike Donald Trump, um, then, then you disliked his handling of the pandemic. You disliked his handling of the economy. If on the other hand, you like Trump, you, get, you basically said he's done a great job on the pandemic. Um, you gave him a pass on the economy. And the same thing happened with George Floyd that I divide George Floyd up into three different things. There's George Floyd's death. There's the peaceful demonstrations that occurred afterwards. And then there's the riots that occurred afterwards. Each of those, uh, I think, are discrete, different parts of what I call George Floyd. The, the initial video in death clearly was an issue that I think most of us um, were very upset about watching. I think there was even support, especially in the suburbs among suburban women, about, about the peaceful demonstrations. It's when the, the riots occurred that that's when um, this became a much more heavily partisan issue, um, when, when Trump made it a law and order issue, and he made it a referendum on Black Lives Matter, even though, as we're increasingly realizing, that the riots were not perpetrated by Black Lives Matter or by the residents in those neighborhoods, but by whom? By white supremacists, by outside agitators, by all those different groups of people out there that I can't even think of the names um, that I've, we've all heard about in the last few weeks um, that I never knew existed out there, what the QAnon people, QAnon people, et cetera, et cetera, like that. The point that I'm getting at is that potentially these events could have really changed the election, but they really became what? Surrogates for what we, about how we view the president. The only thing that I think really dramatically changed things was the pandemic. It produced what? Um, a, after the April, rather March, 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 was it April? April, after the Wisconsin primary, where so many people um, got sick um, standing in line trying to vote, enormous pressure to move um, toward early voting in the United States. And this move towards early voting, I think, became critical. Critical in terms of how we conducted the elections, critical when I get to it in a few minutes about Trump's legal challenges, but critical in terms of what? Opening up the, the, the voting process. For so many people, Voting on election day is difficult. Across the country, it's not a paid holiday. Oftentimes people have to take off from work. It's very inconvenient. Having this, this option of voting early or voting by mail potentially opened it up um, for a variety of new faces or new votes to be able to come in. Made it easier for, for people of color for younger people, 
um, for those suburban college educated women who, and I have to put it in sexist terms here, who are oftentimes given primary responsibility for children and getting to vote on election day is not always easy. So the point that I'm getting at is that despite these major events that we couldn't have anticipated, that I didn't anticipate a year ago, they fit into a script, a script of a polarized um, polarized and predictable election, and they became surrogates for, for how you thought about the presidency, with the exception of how it played out in terms of the early voting. So what we're laying out here then is this image, an image about, about where the election took us, that going into the election, Donald Trump was making an argument that said that early voting was fraudulent, that early voting was not reliable, uh, basically making a partisan pitch and really trying to clip, um, um, attack the legitimacy of this approach of people casting votes. Now, I've, I've spent way too much of my career um, studying um, voting. Um, I should probably have an injunction issued against me from talking about voter fraud, but we in general know that voting by mail um, is highly reliable. We know there's very little voting fraud in this country. And in fact, I call it the Powerball problem. You and I have a better chance of buying a Powerball ticket and winning the lottery than we do in terms of showing that, that, um, that there is fraud in the system um, that's affecting the outcome of the election. But Trump wanted to attack it attack it to perhaps dissuade people from voting early, attack it perhaps to set up a legal argument to challenge uh, the voting procedures if in fact he were to lose, and attack it to provide cover for if he lost, then he could say, well, I lost simply because of, of the fraud that occurred. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. Um, there's a question here, and we've talked a lot about the the popular vote, and you started off with how really it does come down to the electoral college. Um, someone posed the question of uh, if you had any insights to alternatives to the electoral college. I um, do, and I do. I could do that now. I saw that. I was going to wait to get to it, but I'll do it now. Yes. Okay. So remember that if you wanted to get rid of the electoral, I'll rephrase it. The electoral college is in. Article two and of the constitution, as well as the 12th amendment. In order to get rid of the electoral college, we would have to amend the constitution. That would require two thirds of both houses of Congress and three quarters of the states to agree to that amendment. We are so polarized, so partisanly torn that, that we probably couldn't get two thirds of Congress and three quarters of the states to agree to the idea that sunshine is a nice thing. Not going to happen. Okay. I have real serious problems with the electoral college. Some of you who attended my, my talk a few weeks ago, talked, heard me talk about the racial origins of the electoral college, how the current structure of electoral college um, discourages um, 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 or dampens voting. I can actually show it here. I actually have, if you folks can see it here, here's my magic wand. Can you see it? I can wave my magic wand. And so if I could wave my magic wand, knowing that I probably can't get a constitutional amendment to get rid of it, uh, I could do something else. I could get or encourage all the states in the country to change their laws so that they would allocate their electoral votes in the same way that Nebraska and Maine do by congressional district. Now, this is not perfect, but it gets us closer to where, where um, people would have more voices, more change, or more chances to have their input um, um, considered. So that's probably where I would go, and I'd be happy to sort of talk more about that. Um, by the way, I've got about maybe at most, at most maybe five to seven minutes more I wanna talk about here, and then open it up um, for, for Q&A for the remainder of the time here also. Look at it here. So where we where we put ourselves is by late last night or early this morning, 
as I mentioned to you, a very polarized election that unfolded the way we thought, unfolded down to the fact that we only have a, only had a couple of states that were truly in play. The election came down to, on the one hand, for Joe Biden, motivate, um, especially college educated suburban women, but also people of color, also people under the age of 30. At the same time, Donald Trump needed to mobilize his core base. His core base was going to be and is um, um, white Caucasian males without a college degree. The intersection of 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 those of that is of Trump's base, as well as especially college educated suburban women, the intersection of their turnout in just a few states, those three critical states was going to decide the election. And more or less, that is what's played itself out um, leading to today. That what we saw starting last night, and you watched the returns the way I did, it looked like, wow, Biden might win Ohio. Biden might win Florida. Biden might win North Carolina. A lot of that quickly fell away. It then started to look like Trump was pulling away in places like like um, Wisconsin and in places like Pennsylvania, in places such as Michigan. Well, what was happening in those three states is that something that we also was predicting is that he would do that is Trump do very well on election day. Why? We knew that the Democrats were voting in large percentages in in the early voting. But in those three states, by state law, absentee ballots could not be counted before uh, before election day. Unlike in Minnesota, where starting 14 days before the election, you could actually start counting the absentees and then be ready on election day. You couldn't do that in those three states. So it was no surprise on one level that in those three, <clears throat> that by the end of the night or early morning, whatever it is, you might see a partisan split. You might see um, that Republicans turned out on election day, voted um, in fairly high numbers, and were giving an election day victory to Donald Trump. But that was excluding the, the absentee voters, the absentee ballots. And now what's happening as those ballots are being counted, as finally places across Pennsylvania, across Michigan and Wisconsin are counting the ballots, we've now seen in two of those states flip, flip back over to, to, to um, Joe Biden, consistent with what the polling data was to, polling data was suggesting to us that he that he had a slight lead in both of those states an even slighter or slimmer lead, maybe that's a better word, in Pennsylvania. It is possible in the next few hours or in the next day or so that that Pennsylvania, it's possible, could also flip or not. But as I mentioned to you, we've got several other states out there, perhaps maybe with the final, final counting of the ballots, Right before this talk, I checked, and there were still well over 200,000 uncounted ballots in, in Georgia. I think that's a tougher case. Um, I think at the end of the day, we're going to see Arizona be put in the camp for, um, for Biden. Nevada is going to be in that camp also. Given the configuration at this point, it may be that with Arizona in the camp and with Michigan and Wisconsin, along with Nevada and so forth, it's looking increasingly like what? Biden probably has the electoral votes to win, a razor thin one. He's also picked up that one electoral vote in Nebraska. Put that all together. It's possible right now that Joe Biden has what? 270 electoral votes right on the head to be able to pull this off. Trump has vowed and has said that he's going to challenge this. He's going to go to the Supreme Court. He he is going to fight fight this out. And I'm going to get to uh, Navin's questions and a couple of others here. Um, a few a few minutes here. Um, we, we're Trump has vowed to say he's going to fight this. 
conjuring images up of Florida 2000 and Bush v. Gore um, and the Supreme Court overturning the election. Right now, putting on now, not my uh, political science professor hat, but my law professor hat who teaches election law, I've been straining to find the legal arguments that are present in this situation here. Uh, but let me mention a few. One of them that that Donald Trump and Brett Kavanaugh on the court in Alito seem to be entertaining is this idea. It's called the uniform federal elections argument that federal law requires federal elections to take place um, um, on a uniform date across the country. By statute, it says the first Tuesday after the first Monday um, in November. What they're trying to argue is that the receipt of absentee ballots after that date um, violates the federal uniform election law. Um, that's kind of a stretch of an argument, because if that argument is accepted as valid, then you have to throw out all absentee ballots that are cast um, before that date. So I I'm not persuaded that's a good argument. Um, two, there is the argument, it's called the legislative only argument. This is the argument that says that the Constitution delegates to state legislatures the authority to determine how electors are allocated, and that if a court does it, if, as in Pennsylvania, if a court um, um, orders an extended voting period, or let's say in this case for the reception of absentee ballots, that violates the, the legislative only um, process. That's a possible argument, but that would probably only apply to Pennsylvania. And right now it is possible um, that Biden could win even if he loses Pennsylvania. Of course, there is always the argument of saying that, that the election is very close. Many states have mandatory recounts. If, if, if the difference between the candidates is, be, is less than what, half a percent or a quarter percent. And sometimes um, in, in, in close elections, um, the numbers change, um, and that's a possibility. There's the Bush v. Gore argument a little bit that could say that, well, maybe if they did a recount, um, the, the optical scan, scan counters or the election judges miscounted um, or misinterpreted voter intent, again, might change a few votes, not many. Um, maybe there's some argument here that that um, in, in some areas, local election judges um, made mistakes or errors. You only prevail on that if you can show widespread, widespread voter fraud. Trump doesn't really have that. And what I'm getting at here is that maybe there's a few unique things under state law that might help you. But in general, it's going to be hard to find federal questions to stop the counting, to, um, to throw ballots out especially. That's a very, very tough argument to argue that, that legally cast ballots should be thrown out. Um, under state law, the laws are heavily, heavily determined in terms of how to go about this process. And so the point that I'm getting at is that if in fact the president wants to what, litigate a victory, wants to get it before the Supreme Court. Um, it's going to have to go through state courts. It's going to have to go through state law, some federal, but the options are actually quite thin at this point in terms of what he can do. Okay, so that's where I want to leave us. Let me do a few questions here. Okay, so first, do you think Republicans hold the Senate? Yes. Um, um, I thought that the my, my prediction was Originally, it was going to go 50-50, um, that Democrats would pick up enough to, um, to go 50-50. And then if Biden won, then um, Vice President Harris is going to be busy for the next two years, at least, uh, and maybe four years, breaking ties in the Senate. Is the closest of the North Carolina a surprise to you? No, not at all. Um, it is um, uh, it is on my swing states list um, of very tight states. Um, um, for anybody who's been to North Carolina, the Research Triangle area where where Wake County is um, is 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 very liberal, um, or at least let's say um, Democratic. Um, it's highly educated. It's definitely moving in the direction of Democrats. Obama did win it 
in 08. So it's, 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 an, it's a state that is shifting. Okay, three questions, and I'm going to go over to, the other, over to the chat box too. Why are the professional pollsters missing failing to account uh, for this uh, for the second consecutive time now, rural Republican floaters, i.e. Florida, Ohio, Ohio, et cetera. Um, a couple things here. One of them is at, at the national level, I think they did. They didn't get it right this time. Um, however, remember, we still have several million ballots to count. And once all those additional millions of ballots are counted, um, the, the, the pollsters, in terms of their prediction for the election for the national popular vote, plus the margin of error, might actually be within the margin of error. So we still have yet to see that. But two, you're right. There's a lot of bad polling out here. Okay, So about two weeks ago, um, KSTP Channel 5 did a Survey USA poll that declared that that the U.S. Senate race in Minnesota between Tina Smith and Jason Lewis was essentially a tie. Now, I'm a geek, um, and I know I'm a geek. And you can tell by listening to me today how geeky I am. And um, I, I teach survey research. I looked at that poll, and I said, this was a horrible poll. Um, it was skewed in favor of Republicans. And I said, if you actually... Um, cleaned up the methodology and looked at where the race was, I said, Tina Smith probably has about a 6.7 point lead in the state. I think she came in eventually somewhere in that area, if I remember correctly. The point is, there is a lot of bad polling out there. And again, waving my waving my magic wand again, I'll bring it here. If we could, if we could sort of get rid of some of the really bad polling and teach people how to be more poll literate, we might be able to say that that the the good that the good polls were actually fairly accurate. Um, how could the Democratic Party win back rural and working class white voters? This is a tough one. Um, I'm not. Sh I mean, the, the reason why they lost them were, were, were for three reasons: abortion, um, civil rights, and the economy. And I'm not sure if they're getting them back right away. And it may simply turn out that what. What's going to happen in the next five to 10 years as rural areas depopulate, as the percentage of the American population, which is working class whites, goes down, um, it's going to be what? It's going to be that the, the Republicans, their base literally dies out. Um, so I'm just not sure short term. And what is the effective way to neutralize negative polarization? I loathe Trump more than I support Biden or Trump is bad for Biden is, is way worse. Uh, People are more motivated at this point by anger, by, by you say, negative polarization. Um, and, and what it winds up doing is maybe it motivates your base, but it doesn't do anything good to help American politics. Okay, um, a couple other here, the, the other side here. If we change the congressional district allocation, would that dilute the vote um, of people in more populous districts? Um, no, it might actually get it. Well, yes, in one level it would. It would say that, that voters in Chicago who right now have way more influence over Illinois than the rest of the state. Maybe it's a dilution a little bit there, but on the other hand, um, it is maybe a strengthening of the one person, one vote argument uh, across the entire state. I've, I've, I was in a conference for the South Dakota Law Review in early September, and I actually have a piece coming out that really makes this argument about why I think the current winner-take-all system is actually unconstitutional and does, among other things, violate one person, one vote. Uh, who pays legal costs if Trump challenges results and he states is it his campaign? No, it's his campaign. He'll, he can set up a legal defense fund um, missing ballots in Florida. Um, Florida is a perennial basket case. I'm sorry. Um, it is. I lived in Florida for a few years, so I get to say that. All right. Um, I want to go get a few on the other side here and then come back as I can here. Has Putin played a role in this country's current polarization? I don't think he needs to anymore. Um, I think the social media um, has more than done a great job of polarizing it. And we've done a great job ourselves in terms of dividing ourselves. And so I'm not sure he needs to do any more in terms of it. Do you have any cons legitimate concerns about Trump's unwillingness to agree to a peaceful transition to power should he lose? Not really. I don't. You know, the Constitution is clear that if he loses, his term is up on January 20th, 2021 at noon. Um, he's done. Um, uh, is he going to put plywood up on the White House um, and prevent himself from being evicted? 
Is the military going to come to his defense? Is he going to pull a coup? No. If anything, given how much he is, he has um, picked on the military, I wouldn't be surprised if the generals escorted him out. So, no, I don't. Possibility of emerging third parties of old-style Republicans, conservative Democrats? Yeah, that's where I think is headed right now. I actually think, at least short-term, the Democratic Party um, reemerges, built around Again, um, suburban women um, um, and and let's say old style Republicans, and that becomes the primary anchor for the Democratic Party. Now, longer term, with demographic changes um, uh, that are occurring with the new, with like the Millennials and Gen Zs, um, that may not last. But I think at least short term, that is where we're going. Okay. I'm concerned about how seemingly permanently divided and entrenched Democrats, Republicans appear be and seem that no matter what happens, 50% is going to be disenfranchised and upset no matter what. What do you think is likely that there might be another civil war due to the deep division? You know, this is interesting. Going into this election, Republicans were so, so convinced of voter fraud. They were going to hire um, like, you know, people um, to come to Minnesota or elsewhere to guard the ballots. On the other hand, Democrats were so fearful of, of voter intimidation um, that they wanted to have also election judges. What happened on election day outside of the, the recounts? Election day was actually rather boring, um, that not much happened. I think what there was some some guy showed up in North Carolina with a gun or something like that. Um, I think what there was a burst water pipe in, in Georgia, if I remember correctly. But for the most part, no. Um, I, I, you know, I know we had the stories of the militia up in Michigan and so forth, but I think in general, we're probably um, we'll have. And I think it's perfectly okay to have First Amendment protected free speech demonstrations. And I think that's healthy for our democracy. Uh, but I'm, I'm not convinced that there'll be widespread civil war. Okay, let's see. What is your, your thoughts on the national popular intersection combat? Does it have a chance to meet the 270 electoral threshold uh, to become active? <sighs> I endorsed... The, um, the national popular vote um, is one of the scholars who did. I would I did it as, as saying that I'd like to see it as an experiment. I'd like to maybe get get enough states to get to 270 to provisionally have it operate for a few years and see how it plays out. Determine whether or not it should be a permanent solution to um, to dealing with getting rid of the electoral college. Right now, I'm sort of leaning towards my idea. Of, of what the congressional district approached in terms of doing it. Um, does it have a chance? Um, I think it had a better chance um, if um, if Biden wins the electoral college but lost the popular vote, you suddenly would get Republican support to want to get rid of the electoral college. What a SCOTUS decision reversing Roe versus Wade significantly recast future elections? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the impact will be um, even more so to motivate um, women and young people um, to turn out to vote. Uh, I think in part why we saw, we, we see evidence that that women in college and young women this election were turning out to vote in high percentages. It was the combination of Roe v. Wade, Amy Comey Barrett, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I think you're absolutely right. Do you think don't you think Democrat Party would do better in a rural areas if we stop referring to difference between educated and educated voter? Strikes me as elitist. I'm a suburban now, but I have rural roots. Yeah, and I think it does. You know, what 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 I'm trying to cast here is a neutral language. I don't know if I'm coming up with it here. Um, is that we do have white working class without a college degree, but but we have um, but those who do have some college who are working class vote in very different patterns than those without a college degree. And I think you make a really good point here because the the, the real variable, let me put that back, change it another way. Four years ago, how the media was describing it was saying that college educated people are voting one way, non-college educated another. And the it was sort of casting this aspersion of saying that, why? well, smart people are voting Democrat, dumb people are voting for Trump. That's not the answer. That's not the correct way of describing it. But we did find that even having some college um, did change people's voting behavior. And so I, I agree with you. There might be a better way of, of, of using this language. Um, um, but for now, 
that does seem to fit as a category. Because um, if you just said white working class, uh, I'm not sure that captures accurately um, the, the constituency alone that Trump has. But it's a great, great observation. Thoughts of Minnesota turnaround this year. Did we break a record? Well, I know about a week ago, um, Secretary of State Steve Simon and I were talking because we're, we're plotting a, a CLE next week, um, I think up in Anoka County, or I know from Minnesota State Bar Association on the election. And we were speculating, thinking that we're going to be in the upper 70s, if not 80% turnout, which would what be a record. And that's phenomenal at any time, let alone during a pandemic. So um, I think it's a possibility. Now, in terms of the turnaround, again, one of the things that Biden did correctly this time is he showed up to campaign in Minnesota. Four years ago, after Clinton got beat by Bernie Sanders in the caucus, she never came back to Minnesota to campaign. Trump came several times. If campaigning means anything, guess what? He campaigned here, she didn't. He almost won the state, she almost lost the state. That was a message not lost on Joe Biden, who showed up. If we abolished the EC and went to some type of popular vote with the extreme closest presidential elections, would that encourage election fraud and lead to recounts in every county or precinct instead of just a few states? Yes, that is a problem, is that right now, if there's a close election in 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 let's say just just Florida, we only have to recount there. Or if Florida melts down, we only have to count there. Straight popular vote might trigger um, recounts all across the country. That is sort of why I'm leading towards my solution, which is the, the um, allocation of electoral votes based upon congressional districts so that we can confide to particular jurisdictions problems. How do pollsters even reach people and get statistically valid samples? I did phone calling for a state rep candidate, maybe reached 5% of the people. Now, this is the reason why surveys are so hard to do now, is that to get a statistically good sample, you have to call an incredible number of people. Um, you have to do this um, mostly for now um, using about a ratio of about 80% cell phone numbers, which means that you have to pay for very expensive lists that tie cell phone numbers to particular um, addresses. Not impossible, but that makes the cost hard, higher. And that's what's why we see fewer good polls anymore, because not everybody can do that. My students often ask about our decentralized state-by-state -state voting system as different with some democracies. You think we should have a more centralized federal system? Is that achievable? There are a lot of things about our federal system that I would like to see. I would like to see uniform requirements at the federal level for voting, voter eligibility. I would like to see a uniform federal ballot. Um, I actually don't oppose the idea of a uniform federal database for voting. So if you move from one state to another, um, you don't have to necessarily re-register, but really transfer from one state to another. Um, what are your thoughts on the targeted misinformation, um, alternate effects, and usual news sources on the right leading to the truly lunatic notions of QAnon? Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't know, I never heard of QAnon until a few weeks ago Then I read what they were about. Man, that's really crazy stuff out there. Um, uh, and that's our next challenge is how do we get a better grip over all the misinformation in our society? Um, this is not just a problem in terms of our elections, but the pandemic and a whole bunch of other things. So, so I, think, I think we need to work on that. How do I feel about ranked choice voting um, as a replacement for electoral college? Um, when Minneapolis first instituted ranked choice voting, Back in what 2007, um, I was asked to do the initial evaluation of it and actually wrote up a report and study on it. Um, I viewed it then as a great experiment, and I still do now. I'd like to see more municipalities and more jurisdictions experiment with it and see what we can learn from it and see if it's a better alternative than our first, first past the post system. I'm also not opposed to the idea of maybe proportional voting um, or also um, multi-member districts as ways of also enhancing uh, representation in voting. Uh, I'll be curious to see what the results are in Maine, not just for the presidential, but some people are saying this could affect the the, the Sarah Gideon, um, Susan Collins race. We'll have to see. Okay. 
uh, what do you think about the Faithful Electors Act? Is that would be a viable way to get around the Electoral College? Um, I'm torn on this. That if the original idea of the electors was to, for for wise sages to make good choices on the behalf of the country, then you can't lock them into the popular vote. But on the other hand, if you give them wide open discretion, it makes the popular vote almost completely meaningless. So I'm not sure. Um, I'm, again, I'm, I'm more leaning towards the idea of saying I don't like the Faithless Elector Act. I didn't agree with Kagan's opinion. But any given day, I go back and forth a half a dozen times in terms of um, what I think about this. Um, the Faithless Elector Act. Some folks ask questions up earlier in the chat. I will include below. Is there an appearance of conflict of interest for the justices Trump got on the court? Should they recuse themselves? Um, I tend to think, I tend to think it's a problem. Um, the Supreme Court has horrible rules about, about recusing themselves that they expect the lower courts to, um, to, um, to enforce upon themselves. And so uh, I'm sort of in that camp of saying tighter rules and, at least for an initial cooling off period. I don't know, after you've been appointed by a president confirmed, I don't know, maybe there ought to be something in terms of saying that you can't, that you have to recuse yourself at least for six months or a year or something like that before you rule on anything from the administration. I'd probably go along with that. Okay, and Susan Collins keeps her Satan Maine per Walsh, Washington Post readout. Okay, so that's good. I uh, like the clarification of the precedent set by Bush v. Gore. I see a lot of people saying it can't be used as a precedent, but I've also seen several suits by Trump where they where they cite it. Okay, the core the core argument of Bush v. Gore is an equal protection argument, although it really should have been an an a a due process one. And what was happening? In Florida, was it across the three different counties where they were doing the, the manual recounts um, and they're holding up like the pieces of paper, trying to figure out what the vote looked like? You know, was it a hanging chad? Did that hanging chad or dimple chad mean a vote for 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 Bush or, or Gore or whatever? Um, what the court was concerned about is how across the three different counties, even though state law said that. Um, you had to apply voter intent. What, what the Supreme Court said is voter intent is good in theory, but you need something to contain discretion. And if in some counties, one standard was being used for determined voter intent, uh, as opposed to other counties, or if within a county, different standards are being used by different election judges, this was treating one class of voters differently than others. Therefore, an equal protection argument. Now, I still think, and many scholars think that should have been a, a due process, arbitrary and capricious. Okay, but it's in the context of, of Bush v. Gore of reading voter intent. There's been efforts to try to expand Bush v. Gore to apply to voting technology issues, to issues of, of, um, of let's say, election official error. Those have largely been rejected. Uh, the Coleman versus Franken in Minnesota, the Minnesota Supreme Court is the most extensive post-Bush v. Gore discussion of what Bush v. Gore means, and it largely rejected um, expansion beyond voter intent. Uh, so we really haven't seen since Bush v. Gore any court actually apply Bush v. Gore um, in ways that the Trump campaign is trying to do so. So I think this is just really fascinating that, that I think they want to draw a parallel to Bush v. Gore, but from a fact point of view, it's just not there. Okay, so let's see. In the U.S., we have many elected positions. Does it make any sense to elect soil and water, water conservation district managers? Other countries have much shorter ballots. Yeah, um, I, you know, we, we love voting for office in this country. We love voting for everything. But there are a lot of positions like that. That per, this is personally me. Um, I would not be opposed to uh, making appointed 
Um, I would also say that I am not very thrilled about about um, an elected judiciary. I don't like the way the federal judiciary is appointed for life. Um, um, and I would probably, if I could wave my magic wand, make those like fixed terms. But but yeah, we could probably pull back a few different um, um, seats um, from election. Now, I'm also noticing a hook that is here that we're past time. Um, do any of the moderators uh, um, want to, uh, Marielos, uh, do you have any closing comments or thoughts you would like to um, to offer? Um, nothing more than thanking everyone for uh, joining us today and letting um, us co-host this event. Um, and thank you to you, obviously, for your time and for this really engaging and timely conversation um, that I hope we get to continue to have um, as things unfold. Great. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.